My wife looked at the, the um, pages I have in her notes. She, she started laughing. Um, so if you don't have the notes yet, why don't you raise your hand and um, you have some back here. Sean has some. <coughs> he can bring them to you. While he's doing that, um, these books that are out on the table, you're welcome to pick them up. Uh, if you don't have any money, don't worry about it. Pick them up. Uh, these are the Lord's books, not mine. So um, um, there's a calendar for ladies. The the church book, I think we first wrote that back in, when was it? 2000, someplace back there. It's those copies of that. The uh, How to Experience Purpose in Life is older than that yet. I think that was back in the early 90s sometime. We wrote that. Just this past spring, we got this workbook for um, 52 weeks of serving your church. And you might even find a picture of your church in there. At least some of you might. Um, So pick up a a copy of those if you can. We're going to take those out after the uh, session this morning. So in between sessions, you can pick that up. One other housekeeping thing. Um, On the second day, on the notes that you had, you probably don't have them here with you. Uh, But if you do, we missed a couple things there in... Isaiah, uh, on the first page, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5, is we have a, a cross there with Jesus hanging on it. And the verse is, um, verse 4 of Isaiah 53, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the sins against us, the griefs and sorrows that we struggle with. The one arm of the cross, as it were, is given by Jesus for those sins against us. The other arm is the sins against others that we've done. And the next verse kind of underscores that, but he was wounded for our transgressions and was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. On the back side of that page... Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 5 was just relating that to the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life so those first three there in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 5 immorality is a fascination with sensuality and impurity is a fascination with in our context we're going to use the word popularity that impurity is a lot bigger than that, but uh, we're going to use it in that sense. And then thirdly, <coughs> greedy is a fascination with possessions or wealth. So, um, sorry about missing those back on the, the first day. <coughs> okay, is the first one is immorality is a fascination with sensuality. Impurity is a fascination with popularity. So we usually make our our compromises uh, of purity, and greed or greedy is a fascination with wealth or possessions. <coughs> I'd like to end our week talking about worshiping at the altar, and we are going to try to go in high gear right to begin with. <coughs> um, 
as we talk about and as I reflect on the, the good things and the difficult things in life, each of you could make your own list of things that have been, been good, things that have been hard. And um, I think of the <clears throat> author of the song, um, As Well With My Soul, <clears throat> who's, <clears throat> who's, uh, who had a fire in Chicago and lost his business. And then as his wife and four of his children were going across the ocean, Stafford's um, uh, family drowned. <clears throat> and um, as he was then going back to where his family was headed to, they told him where the spot was and at least one historian says that that's where the inspiration came for the song, It's Well With My Soul. He had another son that died even after he got over to the other country. Uh, difficult times. And how do we worship God like he did when he was sitting on top of these, the place where his children and wife had, had died? There's two events in the Old Testament where people were called upon or at least they responded by building an altar. The first one were in times of victory and praise. That's on your sheet. Okay, Time of victory and praise. It was times of deliverance where they were worshiping God, rejoicing in deliverance. The other time were in times of crisis and sorrow. Uh, when they were really hurting. Those are the two times that we, <clears throat> we would see them worshiping, uh, building an altar, worshiping. <clears throat> Some examples of that would be Noah after the flood in um, Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. He was delivered from the flood. Uh, every, the whole earth had, had been destroyed, but he had been delivered. Abraham when he received the promise that he was going to be the, the father of, of many nations and those who blessed him would be blessed, those who cursed him would be cursed, when he received that promise, he built an altar. And Isaac, when he was digging all those wells, and I think he had dug about three of them and the others came and took them away from him and then finally he, he built, or, uh, digs out the well at Rehoboth and then he's able to keep that well and he builds an altar. Uh, it's a time of uh, rejoicing that he now has an, a, a, um, a well for his flocks. <clears throat> On the flip side of that, Abraham was called upon to sacrifice his son. And I can't think of anything that would be more difficult than that would be. And when God asked him to do that, he went and he built an altar. He was ready to put his son upon it. You know the story. <clears throat> and God did it deliver him, but he built the altar when he didn't know that there was going to be another sacrifice. Jacob, he's fleeing from his family, fleeing from Esau particularly, trying to get away from a brother who wants to kill him. He gets to Bethel, and in the midst of his distress, it says he built an altar there at Bethel in Genesis 28. And of course, you know the story of Elijah <clears throat> in the midst of all the Immorality and all the idolatry that was there. Um, they tried to build their altars and to try to call down fire. No fire came. Elijah uh, was <clears throat> was praying. He built the altar and then um, cried out to the Lord, and and fire came down. 
So what do we do with these events of great blessing, joy and delight, which we kind of talked about the idols. Those are the good things that come our way that we really want to repeat. Those things, as well as the events of great disappointment, sorrow, and crisis, we're told to build an altar. So that's what we'd like to discuss today. Before we do that, though, let's go to our verse for our last time. Let's stand together and read the verse. Hopefully you're starting to get it memorized, and then we'll sing the song with it. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? Hebrews 9.14. Alright, let's sing the song together. Change my heart, O God, make it ever true. Change my heart, O God, may I be like you. You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me, this is what I pray. worship you at the two sides of this altar. Guide us in our thinking today that we can reflect on what you've done in our lives and what you plan for us to, how you plan for us to respond so that we can respond in ways that honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go through a, a bunch of scriptures here and again I put all these scriptures down so that you can reflect on them in your own personal devotion times uh, whenever it works out for you because <clears throat> there's, a, there's something I'd like to prove to us this morning. Whether you agree with it or not, I hope you'll agree with me by the time we get to the end of our morning. And um, <clears throat> that is to prove to you that God orchestrates every single event in your life. God orchestrates every single event in your life. So we're going to look at the scriptures that he orchestrates not only the good things that come on the altar of rejoicing, but he also orchestrates the bad things that come on the altar of, of sorrow. And we're called to worship in both situations. So... <clears throat> Um, let's just look at some of the scriptures. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. The first one you have on your list there. The Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth, or who maketh the dumb, or the deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Three of those four things are negative, right? Dumb, deaf, and blind. He says, Who does that? Have not I the Lord? 
God's claiming responsibility for that. Exodus 21. In relation to an accidental death, it says, however, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place that will designate to one of the cities of refuge. The axe head flies off while there's two men working out there. He's chopping away, but somehow the head of it didn't get fastened on quite right. The head of that axe flies over and hits his neighbor right in the middle of his head, splits his head wide open, the guy drops down dead. God says, if it happens accidentally, I let it happen. I let it happen. In Leviticus, when ye come into the land of Canaan, which I give to you for a possession, and I put the plague of leprosy in a house of the land of your possession, and then he goes on to tell them what they need to do. Okay, if I put the leprosy in the house of your possession, that's maybe a form of mold or something. I don't know what it was for sure, but this young couple just got married. They get into their house. They come back from the honeymoon. They get in their house, and lo and behold, here's this green spot on the wall that they've just plastered a couple of weeks ago before they went on their honeymoon. And they come back home, there's green spots there. What are they supposed to do? They have to go in and have to chisel that all out, make a big hole there, take the, all of that that uh, spot out, and haul it off to the the dump, and then plaster it back in again, and then leave it for a number of days, and then come back and check if there's no more mold or leprosy, as they called it, on the wall, then they can move in. If it comes back. They have to tear the whole house down and start all over again. Who put it in there? The devil did it, right? That's not what the scripture says. It says if I, if God puts the the plague of leprosy in in your house. Deuteronomy 32. See now... I, even I am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. In um, 1 Samuel, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and he lifteth up. He maketh low and he lifteth up. So I have to accept the fact that God was involved, orchestrated my daughter Kayla's death, my son Brendan's death. It says I am the one that does that. That's hard to assign that to God's orchestration. It says, I make poor and I make rich. I think of the uh, thermometer scales that we made in our home to try to figure out how in the world are we going to pay these hospital bills that we were getting for Crystal's <coughs> defibrillators. She had <coughs> actually had two different ones. And uh, the first one, as I recall, uh, cost right around $30,000 for this little thing about this big that was implanted in her in her chest. That was just the cost of the defibrillator. It wasn't the cost of the surgery and all the rest of the things that were involved in it. How are we going to pay this? 
and the tears that flowed the day that we went into the doctor's office and the doctor told us that they had gotten a hold of the guidance company who had made these defibrillators and they were going to donate this one to Crystal, uh, $30,000. He makes us poor, he makes us rich. He takes care of those things. Just kind of an interesting side note, <clears throat> when our house burned, the, the second one was put in, I think, 2014, somewhere around there. <clears throat> and uh, I'm sorry, 2004, the second one was put in. And when our house burned in 2016, <clears throat> they were rummaging through the things that had, had um, we could salvage out of the house, a few pictures and those kind of things. And we came up with these two... Um, these two defibrillators they had taken the second one out of her body when she passed away and it was still beeping after the fire interesting anyway that was a side note that didn't cost anything uh, job uh, job yeah job two uh, Job two Job's response to his wife what shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil and then at the end of that book, it talks about all the things that happened to him. It says, All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came to and ate with him at his house, and they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on his house. You know, let's just back up a little bit on that one. Job was proving to Satan that God was right. God was using Satan, or using Job to prove to Satan that his man would remain faithful. It doesn't matter what you bring to him, he's going to be faithful. Satan said, no, nah, he won't do that. Uh, you, yeah, he said, you take your hand off of him and he'll, he'll give up. God said, no, he won't give up. And so he removed his hand and you know what all happened to him. Satan said, nah, that's no big deal. If you if you let me touch his body, then you'll give up. God said, no, he won't. He won't give up. Okay? So he allowed him to touch his body. What was going on in the heavenlies, Job had really no insight into. He didn't realize that there was a cosmic argument going on in heaven. And that God was proving to Satan that his people uh, are, are obedient even when in distress. He was proving that God was right and that the entire demonic and angelic hosts were watching what was going on. And brothers and sisters, God may still be proving that through you in the same way that he did. Satan comes and says, let me at him. And you don't know that. And God says, you, you, they won't quit. They won't fail. They, they will remain faithful. Satan says, nah, let me have this. And God says, well, you go ahead. They'll be faithful. Can you imagine the, uh, the power behind that? If we can just understand <clears throat> what God is doing. Says God turned the, their hearts to hate His people, to deal subtly with His servants. <clears throat> All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. 
Irvin Yoder hit in the head somehow, broke his back. He's in a motorized wheelchair for the rest of his life. All the days that were ordained for him were written in his in God's book ahead of time. Those are hard things. Those are tough things. Proverbs says, The Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for the day of disaster. <clears throat> in um, Ecclesiastes, or no, in Proverbs, I'm sorry, jumped ahead here. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord as rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. You know, that's, that's um, uh, Obama, that's Trump, whoever your favorite president is or isn't, uh, he puts them in there. Ecclesiastes 7, When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Isaiah, Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. And in Isaiah 45, I form the light, I create darkness. I bring prosperity, I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And in Isaiah 53, And it pleased the Lord to bruise him, talking about his own son. He had put him to grief. When shall... When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, in his land. Jeremiah, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways. In Lamentations, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord hath not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come. When a trumpet sounds in the city, do not the people tremble. When disaster comes to the city, has not the Lord caused it? In Micah chapter 1, verse 12, it says, For the inhabitants of Meroth waited carefully for good, but evil came down from the Lord unto the gates of Jerusalem. You know, Getting into the boat with Jesus doesn't mean the ride's going to be smooth. You may be thinking, we're going down, and he seems to be sleeping. It's not necessarily going to be smooth. The um, <clears throat> New Testament underscores this as well, where it says in Acts chapter 2, this was the um, Stephen's sermon, he said, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, this man, uh, catch this, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God delivered his own son to the horrible death of the cross by his own set purpose and foreknowledge. God is in charge of every event that takes place. He knows what he's going to allow, what he won't allow. A little later in Acts chapter 4, we have uh, the Apostles' Prayer. 
It says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And I'll catch this next sentence. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And we've looked at this one a couple times already uh, this week where Paul is reflecting on the fact that the, the messenger of Satan was sent to torment him and God allowed it to be there. said, don't ask me to remove it. What I'd like to suggest is that there's two hands from God that are going to direct your life. One of the hands we can call the cool of the day. The cool of the day was a time of relaxation, rejoicing. The, works, the, the day's work was finished. It was the hand of pleasure. It's the Eden. It's the victory, the encouragement, the riches that come our way, blessings and, and so forth. Um, the other hand is the hand that we might call the heat of the day. That's when you're out there sweating you're hurting, you're tired, you're going, you've you got to keep going because the day isn't finished, and you have this Gethsemane, you have this loss, you have defeat, uh, infirmity. It's the heat of the day, the desert, the heaviness. And so we're going to look at, at uh, those two in light of some of the scriptures that we just looked at. The hand of pleasure on the, on the left and the hand of pain on the right. Um, as we mentioned earlier good and bad run down parallel tracks and usually arrive about the same time so when Job's wife responded to him he responded back to her by saying the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away the hand of pleasure in getting the hand of pain in losing and his response, shall we receive good, the hand of pleasure, and shall we not receive evil, the hand of pain. In, in um, Psalm, let me just quickly turn to Psalm. Uh, well, you know what Psalm 23 says. What's, how does that start out? Psalm 23. Go on. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. That is a psalm of the hand of pleasure. It's uh, Psalm 23 is the one we, we love to quote. We've memorized that one and so forth. Why don't we memorize Psalm 22? Psalm 22 doesn't start out that way. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why hast thou... Uh, why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime and thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am not silent. That's the heat of the day. That's the hard thing. He's not there. He's not responding. It's the way it felt to the psalmist. <clears throat> the cool of the day and the heat of the day. Um, the writer of Proverbs, I think it was Hager, that says, don't give me too many riches or I'll... Uh, I won't need you. I'll reject you. But don't give me poverty or I might steal and defame your name. So you have the, the two uh, hands again. The hand of pleasure, the hand of pain. And one more. 
Paul, in that last scripture we looked at, he was caught up into paradise with words that he could hardly express. It was so full of joy and insight and understanding. But God sent this messenger of Satan to keep him from becoming prideful. This is the, the kind of theme we see all the way through the, um, the scriptures. And we'll just look at a, a, a few more in um, <clears throat> let me just uh, in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse um, 1 through 8 um, trying to find that scripture here maybe somebody can look that up for me and we'll come to that in just a little bit um, oh, that's the one that says a, a time to to um, a die, a time to, time to live, time to die, a time to birth, a time to, to uh, all those different times. They're in contrast with each other. So again, I just have that down here for you to reflect on that God is in charge of those things. One is a contrast to the other. If we go to the next one um, in Matthew 3 that you have there, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. You can write poor in spirit on the right-hand side. That's the heat of the day, in a sense. For theirs is the kingdom of God. So on the, the, the side of pleasure, on the left-hand side, you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God. But being poor in spirit is right alongside of that. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, blessed are they that mourn. Again, that's on the on the right hand side. We're kind of backwards in relation to this particular these scriptures. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The tough things, the good things. Matthew chapter five, verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, meek being kind of the the difficult side and being able to inherit the earth. And the next one. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst. Most of us think of hunger and thirst as being kind of a negative thing, but it says they shall be filled. Second Corinthians chapter six, verses eight, nine, and ten it says, "As unknown, yet well known; as dying, and behold, we live; as chastened, and not killed; as sorrowful, yet rejoicing; as poor." yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. You see how God goes back and forth between those two hands? That's the way He directs our lives. Uh, with both the, the uh, hand of pain and the hand of pleasure. James, chapter 1, verses 2 and 17, in James chapter 1, it says, Count it all, brethren, count it, all joy, my brethren, when ye fall into divers temptation. That's on the right-hand side there, that the hand of pain. But then just a few verses down, verse 17, he says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. I love the contrast that the Scripture gives. It's not just saying everything is going to be honky-dory, the wealth and health uh, gospel. And it's not something that's just is all sorrowful and, and somber and painful and so forth either. It, God knows exactly what combination of those two things we need. So Hebrews chapter 13, 
verse 15, it says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Continually. That is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Let's offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That sacrifice is the altar of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sacrificed, he was the sacrificial lamb on the altar of God for us. We have an altar, and that altar is Jesus Christ. Now, I'd just like to give three characteristics. There's so many more that we could talk about, but three characteristics of this altar that give me the rock-solid assurance that when things come from the hand of pleasure or the hand of pain, they're coming from a God who's in charge and knows what he's doing. His love. This altar is made up, consists of unconditional love. Jesus went seeking the land, went seeking the coin, went seeking the prodigal son. And he didn't stand somewhere with his arms folded waiting for us to to get our act together and then with a solemn kind of disgusted face, why did you do a better job of this? No, he goes seeking. He goes running after. He goes looking for us. We have an altar that loves us. Until our dying day, Jesus is going to use every resource of heaven that he possibly can to turn your and my hearts toward him and to secure them in him. He's going to use every resource he possibly can. That's his unconditional love. The second characteristic is his sovereignty. His sovereignty. He is in immediate control of every situation that comes your way. Every single event of life is like he's sitting at his divine desk. Satan and whatever, whoever comes to him with proposals for how he would love to, to um, trip you up. And, that, and Satan must hand that proposal to God, your Father, who is in sovereign control of your life. He must hand that to, to, to God and get God's stamp of approval, his rubber stamp of approval, before it will come to you. Do you believe that? Or is do you believe that Satan is out there as a loose horse running around, nobody can quite control him, and we've got to kind of capture or fix up whatever he's messed up, fix the fence where he jumped over or where he broke through. Many of us see Satan as being somebody who's just kind of out of control out there and we got to cry on God to kind of control him and so forth. We don't realize that everything that Satan wants to bring your way has to go across and get an approval from the Lord. Is your God big enough to be able to do that? I'm convinced of that. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But he will with the temptation provide a way to, me, to escape that you may be able to bear it. Every 
temptation, every struggle, every trial has to get God's approval before it comes. Satan cannot act independently. He's really not much more than a subcontractor to the Lord. He has to get approval for whatever he wants to do. So when tragedy comes my way, I have to recognize that God saw purposes in this tragedy that he could use Satan's design to actually bring strength and growth and development in my life and those around me because he pours grace upon those temptations and those struggles and so forth so that I can win the battle not only personally but win whatever battle is going on in heaven where God has said have you noticed my servant Dawson Jesse Sam have you noticed him down there Is that what God does only for Job? God uses divinely arranged sequence of good and bad things to develop the character of Christ in each one of us. A divinely arranged sequence. He knows when Satan brings a temptation that's too much for us, he won't let it go. He won't let it come across. He won't give his stamp of approval. Everything he allows across his desk, he gives grace for, that you and I can grow by it. The third thing, he is wise. He knows every nuance of meaning, every potential possibility for every situation, and knows how each individual will be affected by it and how they will respond and what grace that individual will need who's standing beside me when I go through whatever I'm going through and they are experiencing the, the, the spin-off of that. He knows what kind of grace they need and what I need and what the other people around me need. He is in direct control, sovereign, and he has perfect wisdom for every event that takes place. <clears throat> How do we respond? How are we to respond when things come from his hand of pleasure? The good things that come our way. Both sides of this altar, if we could look at this, this altar <clears throat> as being the, um, uh, this, this uh, podium here, as being the altar, what do you do on on that side of the altar, the rejoicing side. <clears throat> you know, on this side of the altar, we're on this side, here's the altar. We've just gone through something that's really good. You hit the home run the other night. You know, it, it was three quarters of the way up in the trees. I mean, nobody else got it quite that high. And the bases were loaded. And they come in, everybody's clapping and giving you the hand wrap as you come past and you're, you've done great. What do you do with that little piece of pleasure that God gave you? <laughs> I'm a good ball player. Yeah, just watch me. I can do it. No, you don't do that in front of us, but what's going on in your heart where we can't see it? You're talking to yourself. <sighs> really got it. That's what we're tempted to do. 
And God wants us to take that event or anything like it in a whole lot more things, whatever those things are. And I think he wants us to stand at this side of the altar and say, Thank you, Lord. That was so great. I enjoyed that. That was wonderful. Thank you for letting me do that. You know, you have given me the opportunity to do all this playing in the past, and you gave me that swing just right. You know, Thank you, Lord, for that. I just want to receive that as a special gift from you. Thank you. It's so important that we can take those things that come from the hand of pleasure, whatever it is, and stand on this side of the altar and rejoice with Him. When God allows... Now let me back up. If you give a, a, um, a, a gift to a young child and they completely ignore you and go running off to their friends and start um, uh, bragging about how good they are and that they got this, uh, this candy over here and, but they really don't give any acknowledgement they don't rejoice with you they don't say thank you and something that says, oh, you know, maybe I need to talk with that child. There's something not quite right there. But when they appropriately and gladly and rejoice with you, thank you so much for this gift, they receive the gift with rejoicing, with thanksgiving. You know, we need to learn how to go to the altar rejoicing. Zephaniah 3, verse 17 says, The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee, is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Um, we could spend more time on that. We don't have time to do it. We can dance on this side. You know, if I wasn't a Mennonite, I could do a better job of this. But <clears throat> we, we can dance with the Lord. And I, the only time I dance is somebody steps on my toe. Um, but there's something about rejoicing with movement that, that honors the Lord. Uh, and I think you know, just raising our hands to the Lord as we're thanking Him for the good things that He brings to us. Contemplate how we can bless Him with it. C.S. Lewis says, Pleasures are shafts of glory as it strikes our sensibility. Make them channels of adoration. So, unless prosperity takes us to humble gratefulness, someone said, it will destroy us. So how do we ask for these things? I would just like to suggest that when we ask for pleasure in prayer, things that are good, we can say something like this, God, I really want blank but not if it brings any leanness to my soul. I'm not willing to compromise fullness of soul for whatever this thing is that I'm uh, thinking I want. really want blank, but not if it brings leanness to my soul. I borrowed this from Rabbi Zacharias, just quickly, a theology of pleasure. Any pleasure that refreshes you without diminishing you Distracting you or sidetracking you from pleasing God is a legitimate pleasure. It's something you can bring to this side of the altar. Anything that refreshes you without diminishing you, distracting you, or sidetracking you from pleasing God is legitimate. 
Any pleasure that jeopardizes the sacred right of another is illicit pleasure. That's the, it's not appropriate pleasure. Humor at somebody else's expense. Exposing sensual beauty to people who, to somebody who's not your husband. Those are jeopardizing the sacred right of, of another. That's illicit pressure, pleasure. Uh, thirdly, any pleasure, however good, if not kept in balance, will distort reality or destroy the appetite. And number four, all pleasure is bought with a price. For true pleasure, the price is paid before it's enjoyed. For false pleasure, the price is paid after it's enjoyed. Fifthly, pleasure is a means, not an end. Joy should be the greater end. When pleasure ignores the spirit but satisfies the body, it will leave behind a nagging doubt whether the experienced pleasure was right or wrong. And lastly, God is the source of all good pleasure. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the closer one gets to legitimate pleasure, the closer one gets to the heart of God. Pleasure has a, a toxic capacity to destroy us unless we know how to worship on this side of the altar. Now, before we run out of time, let's go to the other side. What's it like to be on this side of the altar in a time of sorrow, in the hand of pain? The other side of the altar, we're not standing there with our hands in the air. We're probably on our knees crying, Oh God, how can I handle this pain? How can I handle this tragedy? It's a totally different way to worship than we worship here. But it's the same altar. It's the same God who loves, who's sovereignly in control and is wise. Same God. So on this side of the altar, we weep. We're in Gethsemane. We're lamenting. We're hurting. We're writhing. We're struggling. We're in anguish. It's still a form of worship because I'm taking that pain to a God who cares, a God who's in control, a God who loves. Pain is not just the counterbalance to the other side of the altar. Pain has intrinsic value to our spiritual development. Is our eyesight clear enough to see God writhing in anguish in Gethsemane over the last cutting remark that you received from someone in criticism? Do you see Him pushing His body up on that cross for one more breath while He's hanging from the nails in His feet and the nails in His hands? when you're being verbally abused by someone who is supposed to support you? Do you see him weeping with Mary when your son, father, wife, husband died? We meet a God who gives us a sense of his presence when we are in the experiencing the hand of pain. So the altar of sorrow is such a, a important side of this altar. 
Paul Brand, in his book, The, the Gift of Pain, says, If I held in my hands the power to eliminate physical pain from the world, I would not exercise it. Paul's is a doctor to lepers in India, was a doctor to lepers. lepers. Um, he says, My work with pain-deprived patients has proved to me that pain protects us from destroying ourselves. I find it ironic that as a doctor I must rely so strongly on my patients' complaints about pain, for the very pain they grumble about is my main guide in determining diagnosis and course of treatment. Those who make sure they never hurt can never be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Larry Crabb says, Christ offers us hope, not relief, in the middle of suffering. He commands us to pursue him hotly, even when we'd rather stop and look after our own well-being. Teresa of Avila said, Lord, how you afflict your lovers. I had thought of that, talking with Sam and Twyla last night, what they went through a couple years ago. We heard about Sam and, and Kathy and their, their son being so senselessly killed by this reckless, drunken driver. Lord, how you afflict your lovers. He goes, she goes on to say, but everything is small in comparison to what you will give them afterwards. That's the hope. That's what we have to recall and remember. Rabbi Zacharias says, Only God is able to humble us without humiliating us and to exalt us without flattering us. What we learn at the altar of sorrow as we kneel in, in tears and lament and sorrow on that side of the altar is we learn that evil is real. You can't live perfectly enough in this life to avoid it. You're going to experience the consequences of an evil culture, evil um, sin-cursed earth. Secondly, you learn that evil hurts. Evil put Jesus on the cross. If it put Jesus on the cross, it's going to cause us to feel cross-bearing. We're going to have cross-bearing. And I like what James Smith said in, in his book, Sometimes in this fallen world, the best thing we can do is teach our children how to be sad. How to get on this side of the altar. What to do on this side of the altar. Thirdly, God comforts. The loving kindness of God is best expressed in emotions and actions, not theology and philosophy. It's when that person stops in and cries with you, comforts you, invites you to come and share your sorrow with them, share your story with them. There's something about that. It's in emotions and actions, not so much in philosophy and theology. So back to our two hands, the two sides of the altar. If we do not, if we do not take the good and bad, the heat and the and the cool of the day, the poverty and the, the riches to the altar of Christ, we are going to offer our lives on a different altar. Instead of going to the altar of rejoicing, like we mentioned before, if we refuse to go to that altar of rejoicing, we're going to start worshiping at a different altar, the altar of idolatry. 
we're going to be consuming the candy and demanding more. We're going to love the gift, but not the giver. We're going to compromise truth. We're going to become independent. Lucifer, Adam, Solomon all had the best. They took their pleasure to this altar rather than to the main altar, to the altar of Christ. They took it to this altar and became idolatrous. And when you offer things on that altar, you create a stench. People hold their nose when they walk past you. They don't want to hear all your stories of your success. They're tired of that. They're frustrated with that. It's a stench. On the other side, if we don't know how to take our painful things to the altar of sorrow, we will run from those things and go to this altar of imps, as we've been calling them this week. And there again, your story smells badly. It stinks because you're bitter. You're angry. You're hard to get along with because you haven't learned how to sorrow at the altar of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are able to take those hard things, those those blessings and those hard things to this altar, that's when your life will become a fragrance. There will be an aroma that is enticing to a world who doesn't know how to handle either the pain or the pleasure. That's when Paul said, I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, let's follow Paul's example as we Go to the altar of Jesus Christ with the difficult things we talked about yesterday and the idols or the good things we talked about on Tuesday and Wednesday. So God bless each of you. Not only are you discovering that, but you're responsible to help your children discover how to worship at those altars and to teach them how to be glad and how to be sad. They need both as they walk in their life. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we do feel so needy to understand these these concepts and, and the scriptures that are so full of the fact that you are in charge of everything. And Lord, I pray that we can really um, trust in the fact that every situation that comes our way has a, a special appointment from you that's attached to it. And even when you allow Satan to do what he might do, like he did for Job, we can be assured that you have a bigger plan, you know what's going on, you're in control, and you will give grace for every disappointment 
But Lord, sometimes it's the good things that trip us up even more. We don't sense their danger. We don't sense the way that it can cripple our walk with you. And so, Lord, teach us how to be glad in you as well as to be sad in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.